Welcome to this week's episode of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from STAT. I'm Damian Garde, recording from STAT's New York City Bureau. I'm Adam Forestine, coming to you from STAT's worldwide headquarters in Boston. And I'm Rebecca Robbins, recording from STAT's San Francisco Outpost. It is Thursday, April 25th, and here's what's on the docket this week. The rogue CRISPR researcher He Zhuang Kui made Time Magazine's list of the 100 most influential people, and some scientists on Twitter are mad about it. Our STAT colleague Matt Herbert joins us to talk about why. The for-profit hospital chain Cancer Treatment Centers of America has a big influence on how many cancer patients get their care. So why don't we hear more about it? I talked to the system's new CEO to help explain what you should know about CTCA. Have you noticed that biotech startup names have suddenly gotten really bad? We did, and we're going to discuss that. But first, a word about a new product from STAT. For more market-moving analysis of the life sciences industry, join STAT Expert Advantage, a conference call subscription service brought to you by STAT and Slingshot Insights. Members can access up to 12 exclusive interviews a year and the full archive of calls between STAT's national biotech team and key opinion leaders. Topics are what's top of mind for executives and investors, from clinical trial results and FDA drug approvals to DC policy issues that will affect the entire healthcare landscape. See more upcoming call topics and become a member today at statnews.com SEA. First up, we're going to talk about an extremely online controversy. It involves crispr babies, Time Magazine, and questions about the line between glorifying and documenting unethical behavior. And joining us to talk about these subjects is an extremely online journalist, Matt Herper, who is also our colleague and a regular guest of this podcast. Matt, thanks as always for coming on the show. Extremely online? I woke up this morning to see you had just fired off something like 700 tweets before 8 a.m. <laughs> as, as an anecdote. Well, I didn't sleep last night. So Matt, tell us what happened on the internet. Time Magazine put out its list of the 100 most influential people of 2019. And on that list was He Zhengkui, the Chinese researcher who created the biggest scientific controversy in forever when he gene edited embryos and then implanted them, resulting in the birth of twin babies whose genomes had been altered with CRISPR. So Ho was listed in the, quote, pioneers, end quote, category. Uh, that's in the company of other notables, including Chrissy Teigen, the model and cookbook author, and Ninja, a man who, as far as I can tell, is famous because people like to watch him play video games, namely a video game called Fortnite. Right. So anyway, Time Magazine published a wonderful little article about why Ho was chosen for the distinction, and it was written by none other than Jennifer Doudna, who is the UC Berkeley CRISPR pioneer. And Doudna's write-up, to put it mildly, was the opposite of flattering. Full of shade. I love the write-up. So we could dissect it a bit, I guess. It includes lines such as, quote, his reckless experimentation on the girls in China not only shattered scientific, medical, and ethical norms, it was also medically unnecessary. True. And there's one more zinger from Doudna. Hu's fateful decision to ignore the basic medical mantra of do no harm and risk the unintended consequences will likely be remembered as one of the most shocking misapplications of any scientific tool in our history. That's a burn. Ouch. So despite the careful treatment, some scientists on Twitter were not happy that Hu made Time's list. So let's provide a sampling of the takes, shall we? 
Yes, so one tweet read, including He Zhangkui in Time 100 is glorifying his unethical behavior and sending the wrong message to the whole world, exclamation point, end quote. Right, and then there was another tweet that read, no, 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 don't reward him attention, FFS, and we all know what that stands for. So, Matt, what do you think about how all of this played out? So, look, a list that includes both Brett Kavanaugh and Christine Blasey Ford is doing what in journalism we call playing both sides of the story. Time kind of wants to have its cake and eat it too, and they want to say influential doesn't mean good, but it's a bit of a cop-out when there are dinners and feasts and parties and celebrations for a lot of these people. And historically, that has been part of the point of the Time 100, but it's also true that influential doesn't mean good, and perhaps this work was influential. I don't have a problem with Time putting her on the list. I mean, to me influential can mean kind of influential in a bad way. And I think that they sort of dealt with it in the right way by having Jennifer Doudna write this highly critical post about explaining why her was on the list. So I sort of give time credit for that. And so Rebecca wanting to have this segment on the podcast this week, it was sort of forced me to read some of the other write-ups of the people who time named to this 100 list. And like Mark Zuckerberg is on there and, you know, influential, Mark Zuckerberg, absolutely. But this entry that was written by Sean Parker, you know, it was just like filled to the brim with hagiography. And honestly, it sort of made me nauseous. I mean, it totally pays lip service to the harm that he's done with Facebook. And look, if I'm going to rank bad people on the Times list, I'd put Zuckerberg way ahead of Huff. Well, it's outside of biotech, Adam. But another interesting question might be whether is really all that influential at all, or a lot of these people are really all that influential at all. I mean, it seems to me that someone was going to do this and there was going to be a backlash. I'm not sure that this counts as a real ranking of pioneers. And really, one of the major points of these lists is to get us to do this and sit around and talk and get people to tweet. And everyone's talking about time, which when was the last time you talked about time? Harsh. So there's another aspect of this whole kerfuffle we need to talk about. Emily Mullen, uh, she's a freelance biotech journalist who often contributes to Stat, raised a very good question on Twitter. And Emily's question was, was Ho Zhangkui invited to the Time 100 Gala? That, of course, is the completely ridiculous and over-the-top party honoring the Time 100 notables. This year, it was hosted the other day in Manhattan, and it featured a performance from Taylor Swift, because of course it did. I would hope that he was invited. I mean, you know, if you're going to be on the list, you should obviously get invited to the party. It doesn't seem like you showed up from from media accounts that I've sort of read. I, I mean, but I think it would have been kind of cool if he did. I mean, if you want to break the science internet, a picture of Taylor Swift and Ha Zhang is going to do it. I would have sat them at the same table. <laughs> So what is Ha Zhangkui up to these days? The scandal broke back in November, if I'm recalling correctly. Right. So last time we heard from him was a few months ago, and he was telling the Harvard Crimson, of all places, that he plans to publish a paper on the controversial research that got him on the time list in the first place. There was also some reporting last year implying that Chinese authorities had placed Ha under house arrest, but officials at Ha's former university denied that was the case, and it looks like that was incorrect. Another aspect of this story we should note, this isn't the first time Ha Zhangkui has made a list and then made people mad. We saw a similar online outrage back in December when Nature put him on its list of 10 people who mattered in 2018. 
So what do we think the takeaway here is, guys? Uh, does this say more about Ho Zhuang Kui or about the culture of scientists who get mad online? So this is probably true for any discipline if you follow enough people in it. It's definitely true for our profession in the media. Um, but that is that it's really striking how consistently petty and miffed really famous and influential scientists get on the internet, like every single day. I don't want to name names necessarily, and I'm also often fantastically entertained by it, but like... Grown, it's usually men. Grown men of incredible stature are just real pissed in 280 characters. The internet has been doing that since message boards. I do wonder whether we should maybe think about putting Ho Zhang Kui on a list because it seems to do a good job of getting attention. We should have him as a guest on the podcast. It's an open invite if you're listening. Okay, I'm out. <laughs> See you guys later. Bye, Matt. Bye. I lean very strongly into the notion that we are here to take care of cancer patients. And if we have the privilege of them coming to us, we should be taking care of them, period. That was Dr. Pat Basu. He's the new CEO of the for-profit hospital chain known as Cancer Treatment Centers of America, often abbreviated as CTCA. I got on the phone with Basu earlier this month, just a few days into his new gig as the head of a chain of five hospitals serving cancer patients. I was interested in talking to him about his vision for a health system that occupies, I think, at once a controversial sometimes and underlooked space in the healthcare landscape. So, Rebecca, backing up, what got you thinking about CTCA in the first place? So I was scrolling through Twitter, as I am often doing, and I stumbled upon a Bloomberg story reporting that CTCA had named a new CEO. And that made me think, you know, even as someone who very closely follows news about cancer care, a headline about CTCA feels like sort of a rare thing. You know, in general, I feel like I don't see very much coverage of CTCA, either good press or, or bad press. And I wanted to know two things. Am I right about that observation? And if so, why is that? But first, let's back up and provide some sort of Vox-style explainer background on CTCA. There are a lot of hospital chains in the United States. Why should I care about this particular one? Okay, so CTCA operates five hospitals scattered throughout the U.S. They're in Atlanta, Chicago, Philadelphia, Phoenix, and Tulsa. They also run several outpatient centers. And what's interesting is CTCA doesn't have the clinical star power or the reputation of the top academic institutions and nonprofit hospitals. But in practice, CTCA's hospitals see a ton of patients. That's right. CTCA has treated tens of thousands of cancer patients since it was founded in 1988. In the 2017 fiscal year, CTCA saw nearly 9,000 new cancer patients, and that includes both patients diagnosed there and patients who came to the system after their cancer returned or progressed. To put that number in context, like any single hospital or hospital chain, CTCA sees a small fraction of the overall cancer population. The National Institutes of Health estimates that about 1.7 million new cancer cases were diagnosed last year. And other cancer centers do see a higher volume of new patients. Take, for instance, the MD Anderson Cancer Center in Texas, which saw 44,000 new patients in 2017. That said, CTCA does see a comparable number of cancer patients compared to many of the famous and most well-regarded cancer centers. It conducts clinical research, often published in journals, and, and it sometimes gets the attention of the cancer community. And as a historically prolific advertiser, 
it has also had an outsized impact on people's perceptions of cancer care. This is how we inspire hope. This is how we heal. Cancer Treatment Centers of America. Appointments available now. A study a few years ago estimated that CTCA spent over $100 million on ads in 2014, and that accounted for nearly three-fifths of all ad spending by U.S. cancer centers that year. And so getting you know, maybe to the point, CTCA has often been controversial, right? So we already mentioned the big advertising spend. There's also the founder and chairman of CTCA. That's a multimillionaire named Richard Stevenson, who's a longtime player in conservative causes. He sits on the board of directors of Freedom Works. That's a conservative grassroots organization with close ties to the Tea Party. Stevenson was also involved in a kind of weird little political scandal back in 2012, early 2013. The details are a little fuzzy, but the campaign finance watchdogs ended up investigating a $12 million contribution he appears to have made to a conservative super PAC shortly before the 2012 election. And beyond politics, CTCA has also been a bit controversial on the patient care side of things. The system has gotten some heat for promoting naturopathic care and other treatments that are not really grounded in evidence, though we should note that more and more mainstream hospitals are beginning to offer such integrative care. And we'd be remiss if we didn't point to a big 2013 Reuters investigation that found that CTCA was inflating its survival numbers. That story was co-authored by Sharon Bagley, who is now our stat colleague and a frequent guest of this podcast. And Sharon reported that the impressive survival rates that CTCA had reported were biased by a patient population that is disproportionately non-elderly, well-insured, early in disease progression, and well enough to travel. And in some cases, they were carefully selected that way. We should note that, of course, that story was six years ago, and since then, CTCA has begun publishing certain statistics and added certain disclaimers. At the same time, though, it's hard to tell today what the breakdown of patients at CTCA looks like. You know, I asked CTCA about that, but its public relations team didn't provide numbers on the percentage of patients who are on Medicare, Medicaid, or uninsured in its population. Okay, so that serves as background on CTCA, but let's talk more about the present day. Rebecca, you recently had a conversation with the new CEO of CTCA. Again, his name is Dr. Pat Basu. Yeah, so Basu has an interesting resume. He was a White House advisor and fellow during the Obama administration working on economic and health policy. So I guess he and the center's founder, Richard Stevenson, maybe steer clear of talking about politics. Basu has also taught at Stanford and helped start the telemedicine company Doctor on Demand. All this is interesting because he has the resume of elite healthcare types who, I think as a broad generalization, have perhaps looked down at CTCA as perhaps inferior over the years. So Rebecca, what did Basu tell you about his vision for CTCA? Yeah, so he said kind of all the right things. He talked about expanding access for patients and thinking holistically about their care. He also talked about partnering with employers, insurance companies, tech companies, and drug companies. So Rebecca, back to your initial observation that it seemed like CTCA doesn't get a huge amount of coverage relative to its impact on cancer care. Did you ask Basu about that? I did. So he wasn't sure if that was true, the the idea that CTCA gets undercovered. But he did offer the observation that the kind of elite healthcare community where he's spent much of his career puts out its news in a way that CTCA may not have always done. Here's what Basu had to say. I come from maybe some of those worlds. I come from great academic institutions or other places where maybe they do more B2B sort of work or they do more trade show types of things. 
And I would say that maybe we just need to do more of that. And and we need to, to potentially tell our story better. Basu also told me that he thinks in the past, there may have been a perception among some in this sort of elite cancer community that CTCA doesn't have the best and brightest clinicians on staff. That is definitely not true anymore. You have phenomenal clinicians who have trained at all the best places in the world, practicing cutting edge medicine, but also doing it with a compassionate patient centrism. And so to the extent that that is true or that perception is reality, that's something that I would want to change. And I would be more than happy to talk to anybody about helping change that if there is still that perception. So moving forward, what are we going to be watching for at CTCA under Basu's tenure? Yeah, it's a big question. I think, you know, can Basu change perceptions of CTCA that he referred to a minute ago while also doing the kind of nitty gritty work of running and expanding a hospital chain? It'll be interesting to watch. Oh my God, it's full on double rainbow all the way across the sky. Oh my God. You may recognize that sound from a viral video from yesteryear, back before YouTube was simply a platform for terrifying innocent children. And it also might be the inspiration behind Double Rainbow Biosciences, which is a new biotech company that I learned about last week. And also is an excuse to ask this question, why are there so many terrible biotech startup names out there right now? Oh man, the list is so long. Let's start with Hoth Therapeutics. That's a biotech company that's working on eczema. So, all right, so I'm a Star Wars fan. So obviously I immediately picked up on Hoth Therapeutics, but then I got me thinking like, okay, Hoth, that's the remote and desolate ice planet that was depicted in The Empire Strikes Back. You know, it's the planet where the only native inhabitant was this deadly creature called the Wampa, and it's where the Rebel Alliance was crushed by the Empire. Imperial troops have entered space. Imperial troops have entered Come on, that's it. Give the evacuation code signal. And get your transports. So why the hell are you naming a biotech company after that place? <laughs> so... Leaving aside, Adam, your, I guess, impressive off the top of the head recitation of proper nouns from Star Wars, I'm kind of surprised that the people behind Hoth Therapeutics were able to get away with using that as a name, which is to say, not run into an intellectual property challenge from Lucasfilm, which is now owned by Disney, which I assume employs a small army of lawyers. And I think that issue kind of underlines maybe a through line between what seems like the increasing absurdity of these names, which is that it's really hard to come up with a noun that isn't already in use by somebody else or, you know, a slur in Flemish or something like that. And so I think maybe that's why we're seeing all these seemingly baffling names coming up. Okay, so the next bad company name on our list, 47. What is this a reference to, Damien? So this one is arguably problematic for a couple of reasons, not just the fact that calling your company 47 is a bit odd. In this case, there's a protein in the body called CD47. And there's a theory that if you target that, you can perhaps treat cancer or conversely treat autoimmune diseases that result from an overactive immune system. So the company 47 had some foundational technology related to that, and they christened the company after it. Where this may grow to be problematic is that in recent times, 
in clinical trials, not from 47 itself, but from other companies, CD47 targeting drugs have run into some issues. They may not be entirely safe. And so there's kind of a worst case scenario in the future in which a company called 47 is forced to abandon its work on CD47 and pivot to something else and just kind of have this legacy moniker that reminds them of bad times in the past. And then there's Peloton Therapeutics and Bicycle Therapeutics. I, I'm sensing a trend here. Uh, I don't know why, but uh, you know, maybe the, the founders of these companies are, are cyclists. They like to get out on the road when they're not in the lab, but it seems like an odd name. I think one thing that kind of cuts across all of this is that we've entered what feels like kind of an avant-garde period of naming biotech startups. There was a time when every company seemed to end with Ohm or Zyme if they were doing enzyme replacement therapies, but now those names all sound really dated, but there's not been a new theme to emerge that everybody's latched onto. So I think, you know, companies like Peloton or, or there's a company called Morphic Therapeutic, which just hacks the S off of the traditional therapeutics. I think those are reflections of everybody kind of feeling around in the dark for a new pathway forward in naming companies. And speaking of feeling around in the dark, Damien, there's stealth biotherapeutics. So like, I don't know, what's their tagline? You can't see us? Uh, you know, I, I mean, you know, in an industry that has sort of a problem with truth telling and kind of sharing of information, naming yourself stealth doesn't exactly inspire a lot of confidence. So we've been complaining this whole segment, but you know, you never know. These companies might prove us all wrong with their science. Yeah, this has been a really slow news week on the podcast, hasn't it been? But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but I hope all of these badly named companies do wonderful things for patients. That does it for another episode of The Read Out Loud. A big thank you to Hyacinth Ambonato, who produced this week's episode. Matthew Orr and Alyssa Ambrose are our senior producers, and Rick Burke is our executive producer. And we would love to hear from you. Tell us what you liked about this week's episode, what you didn't like, which Star Wars planet you would name your company after. You can do all that by sending us an email to readoutloud at statnews.com. And if you like what we do, leave us a review or a rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you use to get your podcasts. And hey, maybe you think Read Out Loud is a really stupid name for a podcast, but we'll still see you next week. <laughs>